it's time for the Des Moines Register on Monday, October 23rd. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Twyla Glenn, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Nicole Tam. Before we get started with the register, I have some program notes for you. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Pareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear the Capital Dispatch. 9 p.m., it's the Atlantic Magazine. At 10 p.m., it's the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. So now back to the Des Moines Register for our live airing of it today. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and from donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. According to AccuWeather, statewide we should have a warmer Monday with clouds and sunshine, a morning shower in spots to the east, and winds south 10 to 20 miles per hour. The forecast for central Iowa through the weekend looks like this today and tonight. Look for a high of 77 and a low of 63. It'll be breezy and warmer Monday with clouds and sunshine. Winds south 10 to 20 miles per hour. A couple of showers Monday night with winds south 8 to 16 miles per hour. On Tuesday, look for a high of 77 and a low of 60, a shower and a thunderstorm. On Wednesday, a high of 68, low of 57, rain and becoming windier. And Thursday, a high of 65 and a low of 46 with decreasing clouds. On Friday, look for a high of 55 and a low of 40 with downpours in the afternoon. Precipitation for the 24 hours through 4 p.m. on Saturday was zero. The month to date was 53 hundredths of an inch with, against, with a normal of 1.97 inches. Our year to date was 21.76 inches against a normal of 32.25 inches. Last year to date, we had had 24.74 inches. Sunrise today was at 7.35 a.m. Sunset tonight at 6.22 p.m. Moonrise today at 4.03 p.m. and moonset today at 12.58 p.m. Oh, that's probably 12.58 a.m. Let me take a look at that. You bet. That's 12.58 a.m. right after midnight. Now turning to the front page of the Des Moines Register, 
there is a photo display of Manette Marionette Miller Meeks and Senator Joni Ernst enjoying a laugh together at the Miller Meeks Triple MMM tailgate event in Iowa City on Friday. Seven Republican presidential candidates turned out for Representative Marianne Miller Meeks Triple MMM tailgate fundraiser in Iowa City Friday night. The event uh, ended with a fiery speech from Miller Meeks defending her votes against Jim Jordan as Speaker of the House that she says spurred death threats to her. We'll have more on that in a larger story when we move to the Metro Iowa section. And now the headlines, health officials work to gain trust and a licensing agency keeping disciplinary findings a secret. Now here with our first story is Nicole. All right, and we'll start with that MMM meet and greet because that is the top headline on the registers page, even though it's in the metro section, if that's okay. So um, we mentioned that seven Republican presidential candidates turned out for that event. She did lead that event with a fi uh, fiery speech defending her votes against Representative Jim Jordan as a Speaker of the House. And also, uh, let's see here, Representative Jim Jordan here, she said uh, that's why there were death threats against her. Now, let's see if I can find the article here. It seems like the article is starting in the middle here on the actual page. Um, I don't see more of it, so I'll just start with 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks and resulting in the war in Afghanistan. Uh, he said that I am deeply worried about the wisdom and this ongoing potentially imminent ground invasion in Gaza, which I do not believe is going good for Israel and do not believe it is going to be good for the United States. Uh, Texas businessman and pastor Ryan Binkley and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum kept the bulk of the remarks focused on other issues. The two long... Okay, I actually don't think I have one C. I'm sorry here. On the side. But that's not the same article as the front page. Oh, it is. Okay, I'm sorry, folks. We'll just have to start over again. So... Okay, so remind me, so 1C is here, and then the same story is here. Okay, I apologize, I'm not familiar with this split setting, so um, I totally skipped over the story, sorry listeners, um, but we're just going to have to start over. Um, so the headline here, related to the MM meet and greet, is that GOP hopefuls are talking tough on Hamas. Representative Miller Meeks hosting this Iowa City fundraiser from Breanne Famistel of the Des Moines Register. This is out of Coralville in eastern Iowa. Republican presidential candidates tried to one-up each other on foreign policy on Friday as they took turns denouncing Hamas and President Joe Biden at a fundraiser for U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks. Speaking from the bed of a bright red pickup truck at Miller-Meeks' annual Triple MMM fundraiser in Iowa City, GOP candidates criticized the militant group's recent attack on Israel and proposed a range of policy prescriptions that they said would make America and its allies safer across the globe. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis criticized Biden's plan to send billions in humanitarian aid to Gaza that he said would be commend commandeered by Hamas. Former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley called for Israel to finish them and said that Biden should do whatever it takes to bring home American hostages. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchison criticized those who do not clearly side with Israel, and U.S. Senator Tim Scott accused Biden of abdicting dictating responsibilities as commander-in-chief. 
He says, for those who do evil, the wrath of God should be the consequence, he said, quoting scripture, and I hope that it comes with some Israeli and American hardware. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy was the exception to the aggressive rhetoric, warning that the United States could be on the brink of making the same mistakes that he said followed the 9-11 terrorist attacks and resulted in the war in Afghanistan. Ramaswamy says, I am deeply worried about the wisdom of this ongoing potentially imminent ground invasion to Gaza, which I do not believe is going to be good for Israel and do not believe it's going to be good for the United States, he says, arguing the position is pro-Israel. Texas businessman and pastor Ryan Binkley and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum kept the bulk of their remarks focused on other issues. The two long-shot candidates spent more time highlighting their biographies in an effort to introduce themselves to potential caucus-goers. This event puts candidates Israel's messages in closed contrast. Conversation about Israel has dominated the Iowa campaign trail in recent days, but this was the first time that candidates appeared on the same stage since the October 7 attacks, putting their remarks in close contrast. This event comes as candidates increase their investments and presence in the first-in-a-nation caucus state as the race enters its final 100 days. But so far, only Trump, DeSantis, Haley, and Ramaswamy have qualified for the November debate stage, and polling has remained stubbornly steady for Trump's challengers, who continue to trail him by large margins. Although Trump was invited, he did not attend this event. The crowd grew restless as the night wore on and Burgum and Hutchinson closed out the night, but the audience of a couple hundred continued to give polite applause, standing for each candidate as they finished speaking. Businessman Perry Johnson had previously slated to attend this event, but he suspended his presidential campaign earlier in the day. Speaking to reporters after the event, Miller Meeks praised Iowans for seriously considering all presidential candidates. She said Iowans take their job as electing the next president very seriously. They show up, they turn out. Ashley Strobe, whose family runs Strobe Construction, where this event was hosted, said that she appreciated the chance to see the candidates side by side, and right now she says that Scott, Haley, and Ramaswamy are her top three contenders for the caucuses. She says, for me personally, it's going to come down to security of the nation and obviously the economy. Everyone's in the same boat and grocery shopping is, you know, horrendous right now. That way it affects my home is what's important to me. But then the grand scheme of things, national security is also very important as well. She said the war in Gaza is a key piece of national security, but she also is deeply concerned about the border and immigration policy. She says, I feel a little stronger about that, but I do think the Israel situation is very important as well. Democrats were critical as the parade of GOP contenders arrived in the state. While Iowans are getting ready to watch their Hawkeyes beat Minnesota, MAGA Republicans are visiting to tout the same extreme agenda that would undermine our national security, put our allies at risk, strip fundamental rights from millions of women, and rig the economy for big corporations, while leaving working Iowans behind. This is from Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart in a statement. DeSantis and Haley also took time to address the ongoing drama among Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives, which has been without a permanent speaker for more than two weeks after hardline Republicans ousted U.S. Representative Kevin McCarthy. After three failed floor votes, House Republicans rescinded their endorsement of U.S. Representative Jim Jordan for speaker on Friday. Miller Meeks has said that she faced death threats following her high-profile break with a majority of House Republicans to vote against Jordan in the second and third round of balloting.
She says, I'm never going to quit fighting for Iowa, and I'm never going to quit fighting for this country. She said in a passionate defense of her vote to kick off the event. So if you think you can intimidate me, go. Suck it up, buttercup. DeSantis says he's been watching what's going on in D.C. and contrasted that with his administration in Florida. He says in Florida, we don't do the theater. We don't do the drama. We don't do the palace intrigue. We just deliver results, and that's ultimately what it's all about. Haley, who is a former governor of South Carolina, said that you don't fix Democratic chaos with Republican chaos. She also said they need to get in a room and figure it out and get us a speaker and get on with their job, she said to applause. Haley said that when she was governor, Republicans controlled both chambers of the state legislature, and they butted heads all the time. She said, what I would do is I'd bring them in a room and I'd say, we are not leaving until you figure this out. And I never let South Carolina see the sausage was made. We need to start getting focused. Sorry about that mumbo jump. Not a problem. Not a problem. Health officials work to gain trust. As politicians continue their attacks on COVID-19 mandates and vaccines, fueling public resentment over pandemic-era policies, state health experts are retooling their message to try to sway skeptical Iowans to get boosted and take precautions as needed. In recent months, some local entities across the U.S. have taken on scattered efforts, such as mask requirements, to stave off a late summer wave of the new coronavirus infections. But they have become a popular punching bag for several Republican presidential hopefuls campaigning in Iowa who have renewed attacks against strategies used to combat the coronavirus, such as masking and shutdowns. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has joined the growing chorus and slammed the door on a return to pandemic mitigation strategies in Iowa, such as shutdowns and mandatory vaccinations, vowing in an August statement, not on my watch. In Iowa, government respects people it serves and fights to protect their rights, Reynolds said. I rejected the mandates and lockdowns of 2020, and my position has not changed, she added. The growing resistance to the pandemic response threatens to bleed into other public health measures as skepticism potentially leads to lower vaccination rates and greater spread of communicable diseases, officials fear. It has an impact, said Iowa Public Health Association Executive Director Lina Tucker Reinders. Public figures often set public opinion, and public health needs the participation of the public. As public opinion shifts, so does the nature of our work and the level of difficulty to our work. Already, requests for the new COVID-19 vaccines are at an all-time low, and federal health data shows vaccination rates among U.S. kindergartners for diseases such as measles and polio have declined over the past two years. And at a time when the public health workforce is already burned out and underfunded, its leaders worry a further degradation of trust could hurt their ability to respond to future crises. Iowa public health officials defend their response to the coronavirus, pointing out that it was a novel virus in early 2020 and posed a serious risk to everyone. And because they had no treatment and no way to prevent infections, public health training dictated that isolation, quarantine, and masking, among other steps, were necessary to avoid mass hospitalization and casualties.
Sometimes we're looking back in the rearview mirror and we forget things, said Elizabeth Faber, director of Iowa Immunizes Coalition. We are looking at what happened in the past with the eyes of today and the resources and tools that we have at our disposal today. We did not have that. We had fear and we had an unknown virus and we did not know what was happening. But that has garnered little sympathy from some presidential candidates. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has touted his resistance to lockdowns on the campaign trail in Iowa and has vowed his state would never return to mask mandates. South Carolina U.S. Senator Tim Scott has said his supporters would take a stand against lockdowns and school closures. And former President Donald Trump vowed if, it, if re-elected, he would cut funding to any entity that implements vaccine requirements or mask mandates. Such rhetoric has raised concerns among some health officials that it could impact future policymaking efforts, which are critical in public health strategy. Tucker Reinders said public health's effort to reduce deaths has played a role in policies such as seatbelt laws, non-smoking requirements in public spaces, and food safety inspections. That's the difference when an issue becomes politicized. An issue can be about policy, but it should not be about but it should not be politicized, Tucker Reinders said. The anti-vaccine movement, which once existed in the fringes, has gained greater prominence in Iowa, fueled by simmering resentment over lockdowns and rising skepticism over new COVID-19 vaccines. Even before the pandemic, Iowa public health officials had been working to nullify this skepticism. In 2019, public health professionals formed the Iowa Immunizes Coalition in response to a growing number of anti-vaccine bills introduced at the Iowa legislature, and it has been active ever since, said Faber, its director. The coalition and other groups have worked to counteract public health backlash through community outreach, speaking with individuals about immunization face-to-face -face at events across the state, and conducting social media campaigns to provide education and awareness on the topic. So far, they have seen greater success in addressing vaccine skepticism and resistance to public health measures at a local level using trusted sources of information within the community. Polls show Americans overwhelmingly trust their health care provider, giving po local public health experts hope they can stem the tide. But as the presidential race ramps up, nurturing public trust may prove a long road for the state's public health advocates. I do feel we have a long way to go to rebuild the trust that we have in our scientific institutions, and I do think there's unfortunately an attack on public health and an attack on science that could lead towards skepticism, Faber said. It's not just politics at that point. It's people's lives. That's what we have to keep coming back to. It's not just politics. These are lives, said Faber. All right, thank you. And our next story is the final headline in the front page of the Des Moines Register. Licensing agency keeping disciplinary findings secret. The changes coincides with July takeover of the boards from Clark Hoffman from the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A state licensing board is not disclosing the alleged wrongdoing that prompted an Iowa chiropractor with a history of sex offenses to surrender his license. 
The state appears to have adopted a sweeping new policy that treats as confidential all of the alleged factual circumstances that give rise to licensing boards' change in disciplinary cases that involves doctors, nurses, therapists, chiropractors, and other professionals. The Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing, which took over the administration of Iowa's licensing boards back in July, says the state now considers the specific allegations of wrongdoing by licensees to be investigative information that must be kept confidential even after a disciplinary case is finalized and the case is closed. That position represents a reversal of the state's decades-long practice of treating those allegations as public information. So that means that Iowa's licensing boards, which already share the public far less disciplinary information than licensing boards in other states, might not publicly disclose the basis for these disciplinary changes, or charges rather, that they file. Although the boards would still disclose the regulations at, that a practitioner is accused of violating, such as unethical conduct, the public wouldn't know whether that conduct involved allegations of patient abuse, theft, improper billing practices, workplace misbehavior, or any other type of prohibited, prohibited conduct. The issue first arose several weeks ago when the Iowa Board of Nursing refused a request from the Iowa Capital Dispatch for an unredacted copy of the written statement of charges against an Iowa nurse whose license had been revoked. More recently, the Iowa Board of Chiropractic reached a settlement agreement with an Ottumwa practitioner, that is Bruce Lindberg, who had been charged in March with a variety of regulatory violations that includes unethical conduct and incom- incompetence. The board's description of the conduct that gave rise to those charges is, after seven months, still redacted from the statement of charges. In addition, the final order in the case makes no reference to the conduct while acknowledging such information is subject to public disclosure under the state's open records law. On Wednesday, the Iowa Capital Dispatch asked the Department of Inspections, Appeals and Licensing for an unredacted copy of the statement of charges in Lineberg's case, or Lindbergh, rather, the department has yet to respond to that request. Last month, after the department and the Iowa Board of Nursing refused a capital dispatch request for an unredacted copy of those charges against the nurse whose license was revoked, the inspections department indicated that in the future, all licensing boards would likely be treating such information as confidential. Diane McCool, that is the communication specialist with the department, said that it had consulted with the Office of Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd on this issue, and they determined that the factual circumstances that form the basis for charges against licensees is investigative information. She said that under Iowa law, the unredacted information cannot be publicly disclosed. When the Capitol Dispatch pointed out that other Iowa licensing boards were still making public the basis for that charges against licensees, McCool said that in an effort to create standardized procedures across all boards to ensure compliance with Iowa law, the department will be reaching out to the Iowa Public Information Board regarding this issue. Lindbergh's licensing issues date all the way back to 1990, when he was sentenced to six years of probation after being convicted on two counts of indecent contact with children and two counts of indecent exposure. He was initially charged with seven counts of lascivious acts with a minor. In court, he did admit that he had touched a child who was then under the age of 14 in the Gorian area for his own sexual satisfaction. Court records indicate that the victims in the 1989 case were minors and that some were high school athletes. 
After his conviction, Lindbergh was excluded from the Medicare program. He later appealed that decision and administrative law judge who ruled against him. In his decision, the judge wrote that Lindbergh did not confine his sexual misconduct with these children only to the situations where the illicit touching occurred under the guise of legitimate chiropractic treatments. He often engaged in sexual molest molestation of children in the sauna at his home, while engaged in water sports, and in his car while driving the children to their homes. Months after Lindbergh was convicted in this criminal case, the Iowa Board of Chiropractic initiated disciplinary proceedings against him. Despite Lindbergh's admission to the court, the board accused Lindbergh only of making lewd or suggestive remarks or advances to seven minors who were his patients. Lindbergh agreed to surrender his license pending the completion of the counseling and periodic evaluations. At some point, the board reinstated Lindbergh's license, which remained active until shortly after his April 22 arrest, 2022 arrest, on a charge of simple assault. Police allege that after treating a 10-year-old boy at his clinic, Lindbergh hugged the child and kissed him on the top of his head. A few weeks after his arrest, Lindbergh agreed to stop seeing patients until the criminal case was resolved. At that time, his chiropractic license was suspended. In July of 2022, a judge dismissed the criminal charge, noting that the criminal complaint filed by prosecutors didn't meet the legal definition of an assault. Sarah Wanky ruled that in July 2022, or rather, Sarah ruled that the complaint does not allege that the defendant intended to cause pain or injury or intended to cause insulting or offensive physical contact. Basically, the complaint does not state any intent on the part on the defendant at all. The acts which are on the basis of this complaint, for example, hugging and kissing the top of the head of the victim, are not acts which would inherently show a criminal intent. Citing the dismissal of a criminal case, the Iowa Board of Chiropractic reached a settlement with Lindbergh and agreed to reinstate his license. The agreement barred Lindbergh from providing care to anyone under the age of 18 and to any dependent adult. An adult employee of the chiropractic clinic would also have to be present during all examinations and treatment that's provided by Lindbergh, at least until further notice by the board. In March of 2023, however, the board left levied an entire new set of charges against Lindbergh, accusing him of professional incompetence, negligent, and in practice of the profession, unethical conduct through verbal or physical abuse or through improper sexual conduct, and professional conduct in connection with the practice of chiropractic, and also the violation of a regulation or law related to record-keeping. At the same time, the specific factual allegations that gave rise to those charges were redacted from the board's statements of charges in accordance of a 2021 Iowa Supreme Court ruling that says that such information is to be kept confidential, at least until a case is fully resolved. One week, ago, one week ago, the Board of Chiropractors resolved the case with a settlement in which Lindbergh agreed to surrender his license. Although this agreement signed by the board states that the factual circumstances that were redacted in the initial statement of charges were now considered public information and part of that settlement agreement, the document did not include any of that information and the factual circumstances in the original statement of charges remain redacted. In addition, the settlement agreement also resolved a second case against Lindbergh that was initiated shortly after the March settlement statement of charges that was filed. The board has not disclosed any information at all about that case, except to indicate it has now been settled. 
Earlier this year, the parents of a 10-year-old boy dismissed in a civil lawsuit against Lindbergh. The parents alleged that on February 16, 2022, their son went to the clinic with a family friend who was a patient of Lindbergh's. The child was not scheduled to be seen by Lindbergh. The lawsuit claims that despite this, Lindbergh allegedly took the child into an examination room, massaged the boy's back with lotion, then hugged and kissed the child and told him that he's quote beautiful, adorable, and the prettiest boy in the world. The lawsuit accused Lindbergh of assault, battery, intention, infliction of emotional distress, and malpractice. Lindbergh denied all the allegations, and the case was ultimately dismissed at the request of the family's attorney, with no indication as whether a settlement was reached. And that wraps up the front page stories from the red, the front page section of the Register. Moving now to the Metro and Iowa section, Hoyt Sherman unveils an outdoor stage, and this is accompanied. The story is accompanied by a photograph of people gathered at Hoyt Sherman Place in Des Moines for the Lawn Enhancement Project ribbon cutting a few days ago. The next event you attend at Hoyt Sherman Place might just be held outdoors, thanks to its recently completed outdoor stage, plaza, and other additions as part of its $500,000 lawn enhancement project announced earlier this year. The historic theater and mansion held a dedication ceremony for the project on Tuesday evening, featuring live music and remarks from Hoyt Sherman Place CEO Robert Warren. And others, it feels really good to complete visions that were unrealized. Warren told the Des Moines Register, especially in honor of the women's club that paid those commissions early on. And then there were a couple of world wars in there and other things that halted this project over and over again. This project comes as the venue celebrates 100 years. Hoyt Sherman Place transformed its green space off Woodland Avenue into an outdoor stage and plaza with a new entrance along the sidewalk. Previously, just a step drop, a steep drop off from grass to pavement, and it's been designed for future outdoor programming. It incorporates the designs based off of Charles Mumford Robinson's 97-page landscaping plan for the mansion that he created in 19, in 1910 when he was hired by the Des Moines Women's Club and Etta M. Bardwell's landscaping plans from 1926, according to a news release from Hoyt Sherman Place. Bardwell was also hired by the Des Moines Women's Club. The city of Des Moines and the state's Historic Preservation Commission approved the addition of the plaza and the stage. The Des Moines Register reported earlier this year, the large lawn in front of Hoyt Sherman Place was sloped to be more reminiscent of an amphitheater, providing natural seating for the circular plaza and outdoor stage at the base of the property. Located along the sidewalk on Woodland Avenue is a staircase to the plaza. New benches at the top of the hill provide additional seating, while new fauna includes 12 new shade trees. Come April, Hoyt Sherman Place will welcome the addition of six Osage orange trees. The trees were grafted from the gravesite of President Abraham Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois, and are a connection to Hoyt Sherman and his older brother, General William Tecumseh Sherman, who both started their service in the Civil War in April of 1861. Warren said at Tuesday's event, "Some of the trees will be planted near the original entrance, closest to Hoyt Sherman Place's parking lot entrance." 
How can you enjoy the new changes at Hoyt Sherman Place? Well, visit during Sherman Hill Association's annual Halloween on the Hill on October 31, which transforms the historic neighborhood into a spooky block party with decorations, performances, and food. Expect to see events such as the free concert series Jazz in July held at the outdoor stage to National Night Out, or see local artists perform as you arrive for a headlining act in the theater, Warren said. The outdoor plaza and stage is located at the southern edge of Hoyt Sherman Place along Woodland Avenue in Des Moines. Hoyt Sherman Place is located at 1501 Woodland Avenue in Des Moines. What a fun addition. Thank you. Our next story is also from the Metro and Iowa section. Uh, it's about the former Iowa State football player Ioma Uzurike. Um, there's a large image about uh, him and his attorney in a courtroom. The story is about his lawyer. Case against ex-ISU players should be dismissed. Judge delays gambling trial to an unspecified date. This is from Philip Jones from the Des Moines Register. An attorney for a former Iowa State football player accused of felony identity theft in connection with gambling on games that he played in for the Cyclones and Denver Broncos argued on Friday that the state has not shown how his client broke the law. Judge Catherine Austin did not immediately rule on the motion to dismiss the charges against Ioma Uzarike, saying that she will issue a written decision later. She also delayed his trial, set to begin in Story County Court on Tuesday, to a yet unnamed date. Wazarike, who has pleaded not guilty, is among more than three dozen current and former Iowa State and University of Iowa athletes that implicated this year in sports betting scandals that resulted in suspensions, criminal charges, or both. But he and Cyclone wrestler Panero Johnson are the only ones that's facing felony identity theft counts. Wazarike is accused of using a FanDuel fan duel betting account belonging to his girlfriend to place 801 online sports wagers that totaled out to $21,361. Four of the wagers were on Iowa State football games in which he played in on September 11, 2021 against Iowa and also on October 2, 2021 against Kansas. Prosecutors also allege Uwazurike, chosen by the Denver Broncos in the fourth round of the 2022 NFL Draft, bet on five Bronco, ga- Bronco games, including two in which he played. Those are the games on December 11, 2022 against Kansas City and December 18, 2022 against Arizona. He was suspended indefinitely by the NFL in July for placing those bets. But his attorney, Van Plum, says the prosecutors have not shown whose identity Uwazurike allegedly stole. Prosecutors acknowledge that Uwazurike's girlfriend willingly shared her account information with him, he said. Plum says that they have not set out who the victim is. He said that Uwazurike downloaded the FanDuel app and linked to his own banking information before signing into his girlfriend's account and had his photos snatched by the app as so he could claim those betting slips. Prosecutors allege that Uwazurike could be shielded from the state and federal tax implications by using another person's account to place his bets. But Plum in his motion wrote that there were no tax implications as a result of Uwazurike's actions. Plum wrote that the linchpin in establishing records, tampering, and identity theft is the intent to act without authority while altering records or to commit fraud. 
the minutes and accompanying information addressed ad nausea, how the state proposes to prove the defendant was deceitful in violating the terms and conditions of a FanDuel application, as well as how he violated NCAA and NFL rules, neither of which are violations of Iowa criminal code, he wrote. Assistant Story County Attorney Benjamin Matchin in Friday's hearing countered that it was not necessarily to the state who the victim is. He said that Urazariki tampered with records, a misdemeanor under Iowa law, when his girlfriend created the account and he used it under her name. While Urazariki's girlfriend allowed him to use her account, only FanDuel could give Urazariki permission to do so, and it did not, Matchin says. He said that every single time that a wager was placed, a transaction occurs. Every time a transaction occurs, the defendant has made something false, who it is that is making the bet. The person that would appear make the bet on these records would be his girlfriend and not the defendant. His deliberate concealment enabled him to violate the gambling rules established by the NCAA, Iowa State football, and FanDuel without detection during his time as an Iowa State football player, which establishes his fraudulent intent, according to Matchin, writing before that hearing. Plum in the hearing also questioned Brian Ori. Orilco, that is the Iowa State Racing and Gaming Administrator, about why the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation started its investigation into ISU and UI athletes earlier this year. But Oriolo says that the DCI led the investigation into individual athletes while the commission investigated sports books, which it has authority over. The inspector says there are a number of things that licensees might encounter through the normal course of their day-to-day business. A statute also requires the commission to report certain specific instances to the DCI. On occasion, we'll get instances of identity theft or if there's a credit card that might be stolen. Those might be the things that are reported by our office. Wazirike spent six seasons at Iowa State. He made 46 starts and played in 60 games in his career, the second most games played in school history. He finished his standout career with 144 tackles, 34 and a half tackles for loss, 15 sacks, two fumble recoveries, 15 quarterback hurries, and also two blocked field goals. He was the first team all Big 12 in 2021. Urbandale is stepping up its coyote management efforts. Have you been seeing coyotes a bit too often for comfort lately? Urbandale has noticed an upward trend in coyote sightings, and the city has a plan to handle it. A first for Iowa, the Urban Coyote Management Plan was created in collaboration with the Urbandale Parks and Recreation Department, the Urbandale Police Department, and the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Coyotes live in urban areas, and sightings will occur. This is normal behavior, and residents may see more activity during mating season. The City of Urbandale and the Iowa Department of Natural Resources worked together to pursue this creative and innovative plan to meet the needs of our growing community, said Derek Zarn, Director of Communications for the City of Urbandale. The City of Urbandale has been taking steps in recent years to limit coyote and human interaction, but plans to take it further, said Andy Kellner, a wildlife biologist for the Iowa DNR. For instance, the Urbandale Police Department is stepping up as being kind of a main contact point for people who have an encounter with a coyote to call and get that information and log it into their system, Kellner said. This way, the city will have annual reports on coyote encounters. There will be systems in place to organize and post such reports. 
The city will post information on the Nextdoor app to keep citizens aware. They will also send letters, post signs, and contact agencies if needed. Keller said one big thing that spurred some of the movement is encounters or attacks in which a pet or a person is involved. Kellner said, while this is always unfortunate, there's a lot of educational material that can teach the public how to avoid these situations or what to do if it happens. While this is the first urban coyote management plan in Iowa, Kellner said there are plenty of other cities in the nation that have had plans like this for years. We really piecemealed a lot of this from plans from other urban coyote management plans across the country, Kellner said. We know that there are ones that are tried in other areas and they're successful. Kellner said he hopes this information spreads to other cities in the area as well so citizens stay educated on interacting with wildlife. On the flip side, Kellner said, some people believe it would be better to hunt and kill coyotes, but there are scientific and ethical reasons why that isn't the best choice. Kellner warned that indiscriminate removing coyotes from a pack could have unintended negative consequences for residents. One of those things is sometimes that family unit or pack might splinter apart into multiple packs, he said. So instead of having one breeding pair, you might end up having multiple breeding pairs. Coyotes are also a native component to Iowa and the Midwest and serve an important role in the ecosystem, like hunting and killing rats, squirrels, and small animals. It's finding that balance and being smart about how we go forward. We don't need to go from one extreme to the other. Let's take a science-based, well-researched avenue and we'll all work together on this, Keller said. So what should you do if you see a coyote in Urbandale, or presumably anywhere else? The city of Urbandale, that was a, an unnecessary editorial comment on my part, that was not written down here in the article. What would you do if you saw a coyote in Urbandale? The city of Urbandale has posted tips on its website at urbandale.org on what to do if you have an interaction with a coyote in an urban area. First, remove food handouts or food opportunities. Don't directly feed coyotes or any other wildlife and make sure there is no food left outside, including spilled or leftover pet kibble and bird seed. Next, keep your pets safe. Use leashes and do not leave your pets unattended outside. Coyotes are more aggressive toward dogs during breeding season in the late winter and pup rearing season in the spring. Next, haze coyotes. Use loud noises, raise your arms to make yourself look bigger, and throw small sticks at the coyote's way. Do not run, hide, or chase the coyote. Do not try to haze a coyote that seems sick or injured or is with pups. And finally, report aggressive behavior. A sighting of a coyote by itself is not reason for alarm, as sightings near dawn or dusk are to be expected and do not need to be reported. Frequent sightings during the day or coyotes approaching people and pets should be reported along with any sick or injured coyotes. Reports can be made by calling the police department at 515-222-3321. That's 515-222-3321. Or you can email police at urbandale.org. By the way, the tip about making yourself look big when you see a coyote is the same advice from the Iowa DNR when you see a mountain lion. So if you ever see one, 
Try that. <laughs> okay, our next story is about meeting the candidates that's running for Waukee City Council. It is three、uh, A in the main section. This is from Philip Sitter of the Des Moines Register. Two candidates are vying for two at-large seats on the Waukee City Council. That includes incumbent Christine Crone and a newcomer Rob Grove. The Des Moines Register asked each of those candidates to respond to questions on why they're running and the issues their community is facing. Their answers may be lightly edited for clarity or length. The election is happening on November seventh. We begin with Christine Crone, who is the incumbent, age fifty-four, grew up in a small farm outside of Menlo. Current home is in Waukee. She went to Stewart Menlo High School in 1987. Her political experience includes Waukee City Council from 2020 until 2024, Executive Board of the Waukee Chamber, currently the Treasurer.、Um, the term is from 2023 till 2025. Two years as President of the Waukee Parks Board and nine years as a Girl Scout leader. Our next candidate is Rob Grove, age 59, grew up in Des Moines. Current home is in Waukee. His education is Bachelor of Science, English, and Secondary Education from Iowa State University, Master of Public Administration from Drake University, Phi Alpha Alpha Honors. His political experience includes Board Chair of the Waukee Area Chambers of Commerce, Vice Chair of the Central Iowa Chapter of the American Red Cross, Board Member of the Affiliate Presidents Board for the Greater Des Moines Partnership, Board Member of the Business Resources and Community Development Board, and also a member of the Waukee Rotary and a member of the Dream Team at Summit Creek Church. So why are you running? Christine Crone says that I've invested many years into serving Waukee, from volunteering to sitting on the executive board of the chamber. This prior experience has given me a better understanding of our community's difficulties and opportunities. I want to continue to be part of this team that influences the community's direction. I am committed to showing up for the community members and to offer stable, compassionate leadership. Rob Grove says he's running because it's important for me to serve in the community. This will allow me to help our city grow and develop while maintaining a hometown feel. Next question from the register was, "What is the biggest issue facing your community, and how would you address it?" Christine Crone says that fair and affordable housing continues to be an issue. As we continue to grow, I want to make sure that we are promoting our local businesses and preserving the history that made our town so special. We also need to continue marketing ourselves to new businesses nationwide. I am in favor of adding more leisure amenities, such as an aquatic center or an indoor ice rink. Rob Grove says that affordable childcare is a complex issue. There needs to be enough facilities with the appropriate amount of people trained, according to the rules and regulations. Facility owners need to be able to pay a living wage to maintain the staff. The staff needs to be able to get back and forth to work and ideally live in this community in which they work. I have been in discussions with city leaders and facility owners and operators on this specific topic. There needs to be additional conversations, but I feel that through the discussions, we have started working in the right direction. The next question is: How would you work with community leaders, developers, and stakeholders to improve access to affordable housing in Waukee? Christine Crone says that I feel that during my first term, we were able to make more progress than ever before. Keeping this as a top priority and not losing momentum is important to me. We have land purchased to develop a single-family housing development. I also want to continue to help residents of the mobile home court fight against doubling of their rent and lack of care by the corporation that purchased them. 
Rob Grove says that I have co-facilitated discussions with business leaders, city elected officials, and staff at roundtable meetings on this very topic this year. Affordable housing can only be addressed if we all work towards a solution. It starts with open and honest dialogue among developers, community leaders, and the business community. And the final question from the register for these candidates is, Joaquin does not pay into the Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority. Should that change? And if so, how much should Joaquin invest and what level of service would you like to see in this community? Christine Crone says transportation is certainly important to our workforce. However, based upon the information that has been provided to us, I don't feel the cost is justified for the level of service we would receive from DART. Right now, I'm just not hearing this and is something that our citizens are asking for very frequently. As Waukee grows, continued conversations are welcomed on how our future needs to be met at a fair and equitable price. And the last answer from Rob Grove is that DART is an important part of the region and a great support for many when it comes to transportation. I have used their services many times. I would love to have discussions with DART, community and business leaders in Waukee to clearly identify the specific needs and see if there could be a mutually beneficial agreement. And moving now to candidates for the Ankeny City Council, we'll do a little more election coverage here in preparation for the upcoming elections. Three candidates are vying for three at-large seats on the Ankeny City Council, including Bobby Binns, Jeff Perry, and Todd Schaefer. All are incumbents. The Des Moines Register asks each candidate to respond to questions on why they're running and the issues their community is facing. This election is also November 7th. Bobby Binns is the first candidate, age 44. She grew up in Ankeny and her current home is Ankeny. Her education is Bachelor of Arts in Economics, Master's in Health Administration, Master's in Public Health, PhD in Community and Behavioral Health. Her political experience includes Ankeny City Council, 2011 to President, and Mayor Pro Tempore, 2022 to present. Currently, she serves on Catch Des Moines Board of Directors, Metro Advisory Council, Ankeny Arts Center Executive Board, Iowa Economic Development Authority Board of Directors, the Governor's Appointment, 100 Women Who Care Ankeny, Founding Member, and Steering Committee Board Member. Prior roles include MPO Board of Directors, DART Commissioner, Bravo Greater Des Moines Board of Directors, Iowa Congenital and Inherited Disorders Advisory Council Chair as a Governor's appointee. The second candidate is Jeff Perry. He's age 20, 46. He grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan and currently lives in Ankeny. His education is a Bachelor of Arts from Western Michigan University. His experience is one four-year term on the Ankeny City Council. Todd Schaefer is 57, he grew up in Marion, and his current home is Ankeny, and he's lived here since 2003. His education is a Bachelor of Science in Business and a Master of Business Administration. His political experience includes City Council, 2022 to President, to President, to pre I'm sorry, City Council, 2022 to Present, and Ankeny School Board, 20, 2009 to 2017. So the first question, why are you running? Bobby Ben says, since my family moved to Ankeny in 1980, I've seen the city grow, change, and innovate. It's important to me to connect Ankeny's past with our future, maintain a hometown feel, and continue to make Ankeny the best city in Iowa to grow a family or a business. When I joined the council, Ankeny had a debt and taxation problem, and we needed to grow our commercial and industrial sectors. Over the past decade, we've cut our property tax 
rate and debt load significantly through fiscal restraint, smart budgeting, and revamping our strategic priorities. As a result, we've attracted more residents and expanded commercial activity while creating jobs and balancing the tax base. Jeff Perry says, I've enjoyed my first term on the Ankeny City Council. We've made a lot of investments in our infrastructure, such as a large product, projects like widening the West 1st Street, Northwest 36th Street, and Northeast Delaware Avenue. I'm particularly proud of the new Ankeny Senior and Community Center and the new High Trestle Trail Bridge. But there's always a lot of work to do to be done to keep up with Ankeny's growth and make Ankeny even better. And Todd Schaefer says, I'm running to be part of the continued effort and dialogue to govern Ankeny in the positive and fiscally responsible direction. I believe that elections are important to sustain the current direction. I want to utilize my experience in cost reduction management, business and board governance to be part of the discussions of what we spend money on now and how this will affect the city's financial position 5, 10 and 20 years from now. The next question is, what's the biggest issue facing your community and how would you address it? Bobby Benz responds, the biggest issue facing Ankeny is management of our infrastructure in light of natural aging and growth. Rapid growth 30 years ago means many of our key roads, water and sewer infrastructure need replacement, expansion and repair. At the same time, we're growing both inward and outward, requiring new infrastructure investments. These investments are growing in cost due to the size of projects, inflation, and contractor staffing and supply chain issues. Prioritizing these investments during a potential economic softening while continuing to lower or maintain our tax levy will require the Council to make some tough financial decisions in the next few years. Jeff Perry says growth is a great problem to have. Ankeny is obviously a community that people want to live in, but keeping up with that growth can be a challenge. We must be better at coordinating our road construction and improve Ankeny's traffic issues. Todd Schaefer responds by saying Ankeny's biggest issue is and will continue to be keeping up with infrastructure. This includes not just roads, but water and sewer. We need to allow for growth and update our current infrastructure. We have hundreds of miles of roads that are over 20 years old. The focus will be on how to fiscally support this effort. The next question is, Des Moines' eastern suburbs continue to grow rapidly, which often includes annexing hundreds of acres of new land. How should the city balance the need for future development while also remaining sensitive to rural property owners who may not want to become part of the city? Bobby Benz says the last few years Ankeny has been asked to approve several voluntary annexations. These requests are made by developers and landowners seeking to become part of the city to, re to access infrastructure such as sewer, water, roads, and EMS services. We review these in accordance with our long-term Ankeny strategic plan as well as our state law, pri uh, pri as well as state law prior to approving the annexation. Jeff Perry says Ankeny can balance the need for future development and rural sentiment by fostering an inclusive, respectful, and balanced approach to growth. By listening to the concerns of rural property owners and expanding their rights, the city can achieve sustainable growth that benefits all its residents. Todd Schaefer says, I'm in support of annexation plans when they make sense for Ankeny citizens as a whole and when the property owners proactively partner with the city.
And the last question, how much should your community pay into the Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority, known as DART, and what level of service would you like to see? Bobby Benz replies, Angony taxpayers currently subsidize DART services more than our residents' usage of DART. I've personally challenged DART to think outside the box. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> to um, uh, I lost my place here. I've personally challenged DART to think outside the box to move away from large static route-based buses to direct and nimble services. This led to the local DART on-demand service. Additionally, I've asked for special event services such as busing to and from Ankeny and Wells Fargo or the State Fair, as well as looking at options for a local Ankeny route. With shifting commuting habits, post-pandemic, DART will continue to need to adjust and innovate to provide a local transportation service that meets the unique needs of the entire metro. Jeff Perry says Ankeny residents already support DART with a dedicated property tax assessment. DART should try to seek funding from alternative sources rather than more property taxes. DART has made a lot of improvement to the service by adding the DART on-demand service to Ankeny. In the future, I'd like to see further expansion of the DART on-demand service. And finally, Todd Schaefer responds, I continue to learn more about how Ankeny heavily financially supports the Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority. I believe and agree that there is a need for some form of mass transit, but I am concerned about the long-range focus for DART and funding compared to ridership. We have a few minutes before birthday, so let's just do a quick article um, that is on that same page from Ankeny, Communities Unable to Recycle or Trash E-Cigarettes. This is from Matthew Perrone of the Associated Press out of Washington. With the growing popularity of disposable e-cigarettes, communities across the U.S. are confronting a new vaping problem. How to safely get rid of millions of small battery-powered devices that are considered hazardous waste. For years, the debate surrounding vaping largely centered on its risk for high school and middle school students, enticed by flavors like gummy bear, lemonade, and watermelon. But the recent shift towards e-cigarettes can't be refilled has created a new environmental dilemma. The devices, which do contain nicotine, lithium, and other metals, cannot be reused or recycled. Under federal environmental law, they also aren't supposed to go in the trash. U.S. teens and adults that are buying roughly 12 million disposable vapes per month. With little federal guidance, local officials are now finding their own ways to throw away these e-cigarettes that's collected from schools, colleges, vape shops, and also other sites. Yogi Hale Hardin, that is a health and environmental researcher from the University of California, San Francisco, says, We're in a really weird regulatory place where there's no legal place to put the, the, these, and yet we know that every year tens of millions of disposables are thrown in the trash. In late August, sanitation workers in Monroe County, New York, packed more than 5,500 brightly colored e-cigarettes into 55-gallon steel drums for transport. Their destination, a giant industrial waste incinerator in northern Arkansas, where they would be melted down. Sending 350 pounds of vapes across the country to be burned into ash may not sound environmentally friendly, but local officials say it is the only way to keep the nicotine-filled devices out of sewers, waterways, and landfills where their lithium batteries can catch fire. Michael Garland, who directs the county's environmental services, says these are very insidious devices. They're a fire risk and they're certainly an environmental contaminant if not managed properly. 
Elsewhere, a disposal process has become both costly and complicated. In New York City, for example, officials are seizing hundreds of thousands of these banned vapes from local stores and spending about 85 cents each for disposal. And that is all the time we have for this particular story. But basically, it、uh, seems like the issue here is just that communities are not able to recycle their e-cigarettes.